Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. On this edition of The Big Interview, the soundtrack king, Kenny Loggins. Hey, Kenny, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Yeah. Good to meet you. Have a seat and let's talk. Thank you. Footloose and full of soul, Kenny Loggins is responsible for some of the catchiest songs of all time. He can sing and play the guitar. But it's Logan's stellar songwriting skills that set him apart. Logan started writing at age seven and penned his first big hit, House at Pooh Corner, while he was still in high school. Oh, help me if you can, I've got to get back to the house at Pooh Corner by one. His emotional songs pull at the heartstrings and strike a sentimental tone. Even though we ain't got money, I'm so love with you. I mean, everything will break the chain love, love. Loggins launched his career as half of one of the most successful singing-songwriting duos of the 1970s, Loggins and Messina. Your mama don't dance and your daddy don't Kenny Loggins and Jim Messina sold over 16 million albums during their six-year run. But Loggins catapulted into even greater stardom in the 1980s when he broke out on his own and recorded hit after hit for the big screen, earning him the title of the Soundtrack King. Movies like Caddyshack. Top Gun. And Footloose. Would not be the same without Logan's iconic tune. Over his five decade long career, Loggins has racked up 12 platinum albums and two Grammy Awards for his signature soft rock sound. I caught up with Loggins in Cleveland, Ohio after a special performance with the Contemporary Youth Orchestra. Well, I feel like we should put our viewers in place here. This Severance Hall in Cleveland, Ohio, yeah. one of the most beautiful concert halls in the country. It's pretty amazing. And tell me about last night. 
Last night I played here with the Contemporary Youth Orchestra, which is, uh, I think we had about a hundred kids on stage, all, all teenagers, right. a full orchestra and, and a choir, 40 some voices of chorus. And um, they played about an hour and a half of music from my career. And I threw them a lot of difficult stuff, a lot of curveballs, <laughs> and they were amazing. They really stepped up. They, they'd been rehearsing for like two months, maybe more. And all the arrangements, everything was written for this orchestra. And um, all new arrangements for me. I'm spending half the show looking at my guitar player going, what comes next? What do we do now? <laughs> and uh, it's really fun. Every now and then, you know, to get out of your comfort zone and just move into a, a different element. And I've been working a lot with teenagers lately, and it's really a, a good feeling. I feel like I've moved into more of a mentorship stage of my career. You were a talented kid once. Not so long. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I wrote Danny's song in House of Pooh Corner when I was, uh, uh, what, 18, 17, uh, senior in high school. By the way, before I forget it, you told a story last night on this stage about the advantage of picking the right girlfriend. <laughs> okay. I had a song that I'd written called House of Pooh Corner, um, based on the book of the same name. And uh, I was senior in high school, and I was about to graduate, and I was reminded of the last chapter of that book, where Christopher Robin leaves the Hundred Acre Wood, and that's what I felt, where I felt I was at that moment. And as a songwriter, I would go to different parties, and a lot of songwriters would show up, and we'd take turns playing songs. And at this one party I was at, there were a couple guys there from a band called the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band had not made their first record yet. And when they heard House of Pooh Corner, they wanted to record that. Um, so I was very excited, going to get my first song recorded. And then uh, I get a phone call that they can't do it because the Disney lawyers have clamped down on them. And Disney had a, a strong copyright on Winnie the Pooh. And I didn't realize... I wrote it as a high school kid. I didn't realize that you have to get all these clearances to, to do that. So, so you, you wrote a song about Winnie the Pooh, but you weren't. You didn't go through Disney to get any. I didn't go through anybody. Wrote. I just figured, you know, it's public domain, right? I'm just going to write a song about Winnie the Pooh, and um, and so I, I, I the, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band is going to record it. Then I find out that the Disney lawyers have put the kibosh on it, and there's no way they can record it. Now, I was going on a date that night, and I told my girlfriend. Um, I, I, I'm kind of bummed. I, I thought I had my first song recorded. It's not going to happen. The Disney lawyers killed it. And she said to me, Disney lawyers? Well, let me talk to Daddy about that. I had no idea that I was dating the daughter of the CEO of the Disney Corporation. And um, so she took me home to meet her daddy. And I sang House of Pooh Corner for him. And I'm pretty sure he figured no one was ever going to hear it. So he called the lawyers and said, let this kid have his song. And I'm, thank you, Card Walker, and thank you, Marnie Walker, for being so generous. And, and I built my career. That was one of the most important songs in my career. I love the mental image you formed for me. You're in, what, the living room of the CEO of the Disney Corporation? Right. With his daughter, whom you've in been Anaheim, dating. In Anaheim, by the way. So take me back. If you don't mind, pick up the guitar okay. and let's go back to that moment 
I'm the dizzy CEO. I've got this kid in front of me. Oh, he's, he's my daughter. Hopefully I won't be as, as nervous as I was that day. <laughs> Christopher Robin and I walked along under branches lit up by the moon. Posing our questions to Al and Dio as our days disappeared all too soon. But I've wandered much further today than I should And I can't seem to find my way back to the wood Help me if you can, I've got to get Back to the house who corner by one You'd be surprised there's so much to be done Count all the bees in the high That's too high for me Chase all the clouds from the sky Back to the days of Christopher Robin Back to the ways of Christopher Robin Back to the days of No one of the CEOs said, I'll call the lawyers. Here, I'll call the lawyers. Stardom at 20, songwriting with Jim Messina, and training yourself to remember hit-making dreams when Dan Rather's big interview returns with Kenny Loggins. How does a debut solo artist get a six-record deal out of the gate? Kenny Loggins shares how it all started as we get back to Dan Rather's big interview. People smile and tell me I'm the lucky one. Well, let's talk about songwriting. Okay. Which is one of your strengths. You're multi-talented. Songwriting, what's the process? I mean, do you wake up in the middle of the night and write something down, or does it come to How does it work? Well, it's sometimes like that, yeah. I still dream songs, and I'll wake up in the morning with a melody. And so I, I, I have my phone now has this memos function and uh, voice memos and I'll, I'll wake up and I'll sing whatever I get. And I have a sort of system now where if I get the m main part of the melody and then I have to follow that up, do I hear a bass line? Do I hear what's the chordal progression? And uh, I always have to get the, you know, what's the rhythm? And so I get a pretty good idea for a start of a song and I keep these as notes. And then when I have opportunities to collaborate, I'll pull out my phone and say, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Well, I'm interested when you say you dream songs, mm -hmm. not to get too personal, but I dream, but I have trouble remembering when I wake up in the morning what it was mm -hmm. that I dreamt. But you say you remember at least enough to start I, writing I something remember, down. Well, I've, I've trained myself because I caught early on that, well, I, I trade in ideas, right? And so it's important that I catch those ideas. And um, so I've taught myself how to remember enough of what I've got. Sometimes I he'll, I'll hear such a complete idea that I, I can't get it all onto tape in time. Tape, I call it. Well, among other things, you're a great storyteller. Every songwriter is a storyteller, right? Yeah. But tell me the story of when you begin to break through. Tell me the story of you and Messina. How did that happen? What happened? <laughs> I, I asked myself that. <laughs> um, that uh, I was, it was what, about a year after um, graduation, I was, 
auditioning for people. You're what, about 21, 22? Uh, about 20. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, living in East LA, I had a job as a songwriter, 100 bucks a week. Lived in a half a duplex for 65 bucks a month. <laughs> and uh, living large. And, um, and I got a phone call from a friend who knew Jimmy Messina. Jimmy had left a group called Poco uh, after producing Buffalo Springfield. And um, he was uh, looking to be a, a house producer for Columbia Records and was looking for acts. The act, ironically, the act that he listened to before me that he passed on was Dan Fogelberg. And, and then I came and auditioned for him. And I just sat, we had tacos at his house, and I sat and sang Danny's song and House of Pooh Corner and a few others. And he went, yeah, this kid's pretty good. Let's, let's see if we can work together. And we started working on a Kenny Loggins record to be produced by Jimmy Messina. And then he showed me a couple of his songs that he never got to record. And I said, those are great songs. So we, I started working up a couple of his songs for my album. And then he started singing harmonies on his songs. And then suddenly we went, this is a pretty good sound. We kept kind of an Everly Brothers thing going. So, so you had an act. So we had an act. We just kept going. And for how long did that go? Six years. And then you split. Well, the understanding, see, when I first went to Columbia Records, I was going as Kenny Loggins. And then all of a sudden we had a Loggins and Messina record. Jimmy and I thought that it would be a one-time thing. So Jimmy came up with the idea of calling it sitting in, like the jazz players would right. come and one would sit in with the other. Right. So it was Kenny Loggins with Jimmy Messina sitting in. And then we turned it into Columbia Records and Clive Davis goes, no way am I releasing a band that's only gonna do one record. He <laughs> says, so I'm not releasing this record unless you commit to a six album deal. So we said, sure. Well, six album deal, pretty good. That's a, in those days, that was a great deal, you know, and, and it just, you know, and we hit success really quickly. One of the uh, advantages to that era was that when our record came out, there was a new radio format called FM. Now I feel old. <laughs> like, so now FM, which has been around for a long time, is really beginning to take traction. We're talking about when? Early 70s, mid-70s? Early 70s, 71, and FM was emerging as an alternative music source, and there were no ads. Mm -hmm. And so they kicked AM butt, and the AM radio was relegated to pure pop, yeah. and FM was the album cuts. And, and so, you know, you could hear six cuts by Jimi Hendrix in a row on FM, and AM couldn't do any of that. But the time came for a split. Yep, six years in, I started writing a lot of different kinds of stuff, and it didn't fit into the mode of a Loggins and Messina record. And I felt really ready to, to break away and do the record I thought I was making six years before that. And, um, and so Jimmy and I talked about it, and I started prepping for a Kenny Loggins record. All right, so you've broken away, you have your own solo career. Well, that, I had the, the Celebrate Me Home album first, which um, did well, and then the next record I did, I had a duet with Stevie Nicks. So the first thing, the real jump in my solo career was becoming an opening act for Fleetwood Mac, right as Rumors was taking off. And so I went on the road with them, 
made friends with the band. We would hang out after shows and stuff. And Stevie said, if you ever need a chick singer, give me a call. So yeah, let, let me think. She's only the most popular female singer in the world. I might give her a call. So I, I wrote a song called Whenever I Call You Friend, and we did that as a duet. And that really, I credit her as the primary reason why my solo career really got traction. You became known fairly quickly for movie soundtracks. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? I met John Peters when he was with Barbara Streisand, and uh, we became friends during that time when she was doing A Star is Born. And then John and Barbara split, and he, his first project was a thing called Caddyshack, which he produced with the National Lampoon people. And, um, and so he called me and said, come by, see this movie I'm almost done with. And they, we screened uh, Caddyshack before there was any gopher in it. And, you know, I just laughed my ass off. And I said, this is, this is hilarious. I, gotta, I wanna write every song for this. So I wrote about three songs for Caddyshack. And then my best friend, Dean Pitchford, had written a screenplay. And he said, would you read my screenplay and check it out? And I read it and he says, I need a couple songs for this. And I said, well, it's not gone with the wind, but so screenplay, screenplay was called Footloose. And so as a favor to Dean, I wrote a couple songs for his screen. And people don't realize in Hollywood, the cab driver has a screenplay. So it's not unusual to- By the way, I have a screenplay. I know, I figured you were gonna say that. Um, you know, it's not unusual to get some, have somebody hand you a screenplay and say, would you write a song for it? But Dean was a friend of mine, so I did. So favor to a friend becomes a favor to me was a year later, this is the biggest movie of the summer. You can't see that coming. The movie thing is an interesting synergy because the movie lifts the song, the song lifts the movie. And back then, that hadn't been done. Pop music and movies were not necessarily symbiotic. And all of a sudden, it was working. And MTV was a new thing. And MTV was playing the videos from the movies and it was killing all the other videos. And how did you get with Top Gun? Well, they did a, what's called a cattle call. Uh, that was a Bruckheimer Simpson movie. And they had every pop act in the business was coming to see a screening of Tom Cruise's new movie. This was like his second movie. Um, Risky Business was the breakthrough, right? And so everybody knew that Cruise was gonna take off. So they had a powerful you know, opportunity to get the biggest act. So I, I went with my writing partner and we saw the movie and I said, Let's not compete with those opening credits. Let's write for the volleyball scene. Nobody's gonna write for that. So we'll get a song in the movie. So we did, we wrote a song called Playing With The Boys. 
And I was in the studio recording playing with the boys when I got a call from Giorgio Moroder, who had written the bulk of Danger Zone and quite a few of the songs in Top Gun. And he said, uh, I've got I've to put a voice on this song. And the band I had, uh, the lawyers killed the deal. So I have no singer for this song. So he has Danger Zone, now, but he needs a singer. He needs a singer. And, and it wasn't supposed to be me. It was supposed to be Jefferson Starship. Right. But they got pulled out of the project. So, um, so he knew I was in the studio down the street. So this is how it works, right? You think this is like somebody thought about this? No, I'm in the studio, and he says, do you want to sing my song? I said, well, is it up-tempo? Because I've been writing nothing but ballads, and I need something up-tempo. He says, yeah, it rocks. Okay, I'll be right there. I didn't listen to it. I came inside unseen. I made a few changes to it, rewrote a little lyric, added some chords. We recorded it. I'm glad you told me that story. Because I thought Tom Cruise picked you out of the crowd and said, write me a song or sing, sing this song. No, no, maybe this next one, though. I've been seeing some of the ads for the remake, and, uh, and Danger Zone is still a major part of the ads, so I'm excited about that. Well, you were such a part of a special time in our country's history with the We Are the World project. Mm-hmm. What was that like? You worked among others with uh, Michael Jackson? right. Well, I'd worked with Michael on, on a song on um, one of my earlier records, and uh, we became friends. And he trusted me for some reason, and he and Lionel had written We Are the World, and they were putting together an all-star cast to sing it. And so Michael called me, he wanted me on the front line, and he uh, asked, you know, who do you recommend? And they already had a pretty strong cast. They were pulling everybody from, was it the American Music Awards that night, I think? And so we all went, th- went to Quincy's studio after the American Music Awards. Uh, and uh, I'm, my bragging rights was that I pulled Huey Lewis into the front line because he wasn't, Michael wasn't yet aware of Huey. We had, uh, uh, Prince was supposed to be there, but Prince went, I don't want to hang out with all you people. So he didn't show up. Uh, my favorite story, which I hope I don't get in trouble for, is that Paul Simon was on the riser in front of me, and, uh, and he looked up and said, he looked at the whole cast behind him, and he said, boy, if a bomb lands on this place, John Denver's back on top. <laughs> yeah. I find that particularly funny. Yeah. Good, good line, Ed It Lib. is a good line. Good line, line Ed I get back to We Are the World. Do you ever think we can have that sense of community again? It was, it was a special moment. Yeah, it really when was. We felt a very special sense of community. Mm-hmm. Can we, will we ever see that again? I think we will. We had, as you're probably aware of, um, fires and mudslides. In my, in my town, in Montecito, we lost 22 people in 500 homes to the mudslides. And people aren't aware of the level of devastation that happened. Everybody knows somebody who died. And the, 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 the amount of grief was overwhelming. And um, I got called by three really talented teenagers who had been told there was nothing they could do to help. And they decided that because they'd done talent shows and they were the top of the 
cream of the crop. They said, we think we can put together enough of the talent, teen talent in this town to do a benefit concert. And we want you to headline. I said, no, I don't want to headline. I want to help you produce it. It should be all teenagers. So I, I stepped in and I helped them put a show together where they, instead of competing with each other, which has been the norm, they help each other and they sing on each other's songs. And I brought a band in, I brought a director, I brought production, stage crew. Uh, we made a show out of it. And what happened was the teenagers became that voice that the adults needed to bring everybody together to express their grief and to open their hearts to the possibility of helping each other. And I think that's the future of the shift in consciousness that's going to happen in this country, that we pull each other up instead of fighting each other. And it's going to take a little while. When we come back, Hollywood called, and boy, did Kenny Loggins answer. Dan Rather's big interview with the pop maestro of the movies continues in a moment. From radio pop to movie soundtracks, Kenny Loggins became the conductor of Life's Soundtrack. Let's get back to Dan Rather's big interview. You've worked with some of the most talented people uh, in the music industry. Who gave you the most joy? Oh, that every time somebody asks me that question, I think about uh, Fred Astaire's answer about his favorite dancing partner. He would never answer that. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've written with David Foster, Mike McDonald, Steve Perry. Um, you know, Steve, I wrote with Melissa Manchester. She and I wrote a friend for Stevie Nicks. Um, I've been lucky that I get to do a lot of duets with people. I'm a collaborator. Um, when I was in high school, I read the autobiography, or no, the biography of George S. Kaufman, who they called the greatest collaborator. Why did I read about George S. Kaufman? It was so far before my time, but I was really attracted to the idea of collaboration. And I've spent my career collaborating. I just did a collaboration with Michael and Thundercat, who won a couple Grammys as a producer of the year. And he's a whole nother kind of genre, kind of acid jazz guy. And it's like, can you go there? And my kids called me and said, Dad, Thundercat just talked about you. You got to write with him. <laughs> so I put it together and we wrote a song with him. And, and it's suddenly back on the charts. It's like, OK, let's go there. The old Tomcat with the Thundercats. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty fun. Let me show Well, I want to talk about the music a little more yeah. specifically. We talked some about Footloose, Danger Zone, Conviction of the Heart. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Um, that was co-written with a friend of mine, lead guitar player in the band named Guy Thomas. Guy brought a, the basic idea to me, and then we jammed on it from there. But that was a, a really interesting period of time. That was another period of growth. 
I was coming out of my first marriage and had not yet evolved into my second. So we're in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. And this first part of my life seems to be dissolving, coming apart. And so for me, Conviction of the Heart was a song about one's understanding of your connectedness to everything around you. And when everything is coming apart, what's left? And then all of a sudden, the next morning, I wake up with this melody idea, and I run down to where Guy is, and I say, this is the chorus. One with the earth, with the sky, one with everything in life. He says, what does that have to do with what we've been writing about? And I said, I don't know. But I know this is what goes together. I recently got a call from uh, a friend, an old friend who's producing the new Barbara Streisand record. And he says, Barbara wants to do songs that only matter to her. And she loves the, the environmental anthemic quality of conviction of the heart. She wants, she wants you to rewrite the lyrics so that it's more of an environmental song. I said, it is. It's already, it's the essence of the environmental movement. If you don't catch your connection to everything around you, why should you care? This character wakes up and goes, oh, I'm a part of everything. I have a responsibility for that. And that's the cathartic moment where he steps into his, the next phase of his life, his connection to everything. That's where I was. I didn't get it consciously, but I got it through my music. Are you going to rewrite the lyrics for Robert Streisand? No, and I love Barbara, but no, this song is done. <laughs> Let's move on to This Is It. This Is It is a song that was co-written with Mike McDonald, and we had two lines of music that came, or two lines of lyric that came with the music. The opening line, there have been times in my life I've been wondering why, which I thought was a great way to start anything. And, and then the line in the middle, you think that maybe it's over only if you want it to be. And we thought that was a relationship, so we were writing relationship lyrics. And at the same time, my dad went in the hospital for major surgery. And I visited him in the hospital the morning of the surgery, and we had a discussion about whether or not he was going to survive, because he was trying to convince me that he was prepared to die on the operating table. So um, uh, we had a discussion about that. I, it kind of pissed me off. And um, so when I went back to write with Michael, um, the song we'd been struggling with, we got to that line, you think that maybe it's over only if you want it to be. And I said, I think I know what this song is about. So we finished it. I explained it to him and we finished it. And I remember we got to the line, this is it, this is it. And he looks at me and goes, that's it? This is it? Is that the title? I said, yeah. I think that's what it is. Turned out to be not a bad title. Not a bad title at all. Deceptively simple. You hit it pretty young. Yeah, 22. There are any number of people who hit it fairly big or maybe very big when they're young and then flame out to some young person who believes he or she is reaching at or near their peak. 
mm-hmm. but they're still young. Any counsel for them? Um, there's, it's not an easy answer to that question, you know, uh, that I never got too caught up in drugs and alcohol. I could always manage to skate out of that. That's a big, I think when you talk about young artists flaming out, it's, you know, when, they, when the drugs really become overwhelming, it's too, too much, too quick. Clive Davis used to call it the emotional bends, going up too fast. Then you see a lot of people self-immolate in that process. Um, I, you know, the fact that I somehow navigated through that, even with two marriages and two divorces and, and the craziness of showbiz, um, I think just uh, stay, stay conscious, stay awake, and, and I would have to say do, do the work. Do the work on yourself. Um, that I encourage my kids to consider therapy as part of the nature of things, to have somebody to talk to. I think that's helped me a lot. In thinking about over the trails that you have traveled, what loss struck you the deepest and stayed with you the longest? Um, My second marriage, because I didn't see it coming. I had two children, have two children, but had. Uh, I thought I was in a happy home, and suddenly I wasn't. And it took me about seven years to get my feet back under me. But I changed dramatically during that time. How did you change? It was like um, taking every aspect of who I thought I was, and it all went up in the air, and then there was nothing. And then what came back to me was what I truly owned. It was who I truly am. And so it was a sort of reinvention of myself. A friend of mine called it reconstituting the inner cosmology, (laughs) which means, you know, who am I? What do I stand for? What do I believe? How do I present myself in the world? What's authentically me versus Kenny Loggins? You know, that sort of persona that we create when we spend our lives on camera. Now we're getting to it. (laughs) So, who are you? (laughs) Um, What I've learned, the word that just came to me when you said that is integrity, is how one relates to oneself. A lot of people think they can get by by presenting a false persona that will make people love them. And sooner or later, we see through that because, because it's not real. My relationship to all those people and what they think of me is irrelevant to what I think of me. And so as I learn to live with integrity and as I present that to the world, I become more of that. And, that. and that shows up in my relationships. It shows up in my relationship to my children. I'm very proud to say that none of them want to shoot me. <laughs> and that we, we love each other. We get along. I have a be- beautiful, strong family. And I get along great with my ex-wives, too. And, um, boy, I feel like I'm setting myself up here. <laughs> it's like things are too good. I'm just, you know... 
I'm not ready for things to go wrong right yet. So everything's going really well. Well, I asked you who you are. You said that you had thought deeply and for a long time about who am I. Mm -hmm. But the word that came to my mind as you were talking is authenticity, mm -hmm. to be authentic. Right. Which is very difficult, whether you're on television every night or appearing before mm -hmm. screaming adoring fans every night. It's yeah. very difficult to know what is authentic and what isn't, well, even within yourself. That's why I go back to the word integrity, that my relationship with myself is to be true to myself. Um, in, uh, I'm in a relationship now with a beautiful woman. And I say, you, you don't trust me because, of, because I'm telling you to. You trust me because of my relationship to myself. You know, I will act in a way that I answer to myself. And that's really the only trustworthy person. That's heavy, man. <laughs> <laughs> and yet incredibly simple. You've had so much success, songwriting, song singing, performing. If you're going to be remembered for only one piece of music, mm -hmm. what would you prefer it be? Not Danger Zone. Not Danger Zone? Not Danger Zone, no. Although that probably will be the case. Um, I would say either Pooh or Danny's song, um, but for me, conviction of the heart is the essence of who I am and what I believe. Um, I would love it if that emerged as an important song, you know, for people to remember me by. But uh, maybe I haven't written it yet. There's more to come. I'll bet there is. But let's mm -hmm. hold to that. Okay. Don't want to press you because you performed last night. But since you picked it, play me at least a verse or two of that. Of conviction? Yes. All right. We'll do it in a morning key. We're all the dreams that we once had. This is the time to bring them back. What were the promises? Caught on the tips of our tongues We won't get up for again There's a whole other night Waiting to be lived But one day we'll brave it now Talk with conviction of the heart I'd walked alone As if my feet were not my own Such is the path I chose Doors I have opened and closed I'm tired of living this life
many years of taking now Isn't it time to stop somehow Air that's too angry to breathe Water our children can't drink You've heard it hundreds of times Say your well appreciate you doing that. Thank you. Kenny, you've been so good at this, yeah. you, and I appreciate it. You've been in the moment, which I appreciate. Thank you. What question have I not asked you that <laughs> I should cheating. have asked you? You know that's cheating. <laughs> um, uh, what haven't you asked? No, I, I, I appreciate our conversation. Thank you. All right, thank you. Good luck, Godspeed. Thank you. You too. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media where we share behind the scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.